Cahen is sponsored in part by Soulcraft Brewing, Salida's hometown brewery, offering a large selection of traditional and seasonal craft beers. Their spacious patio features cozy fire pit tables for outdoor warmth on chilly days. Fresh food is served daily at the Soul Shack food truck, featuring snacks like wings and pretzels, and full meals like sandwiches, burgers, and a delicious brunch on Sunday. Soulcraft is open daily for happy hour, lunch, and dinner. Cahen is supported in part by Little Red Hen Bakery, located at 302 G Street in downtown Salida. Little Red Hen specializes in hometown fresh-baked bread, bagels, and treats, all made with organic and local ingredients. A full menu, including the wood-fired oven schedule and daily specials, can be found on their Facebook page at Little Red Hen Salida. Cahen and Little Red Hen – just two hometown chickens working to keep Salida, Salida. Welcome, friends, to the second half of an edition of On the Rails with me, your host, Forrest Whitman. And as also, you can listen to this and the first half, going if you want to go to khen.org and go to the podcast, or you can just click on KHEN 106.9 FM. And uh, we've been having a little trouble with the internet here in the caboose. That's what happens when you put 19th, tech, 19th century technology together with 21st century. I don't know. We'll see what happens. But um, life is still good in the caboose. It's the springtime where it's very dry, but even though it's dry, we, you can still see some some flowers here and there. And that is going to lead us to introduce our, our guest again, Stu Pappenford, who is a former commander, a commander. I think he was maybe commander in chief of the FibArc festivities here in Salida. Commodore. <laughs> Were you a commander? Commodore. An aquatic, aquatic term. Uh-huh. <laughs> was the uh, number one man at the uh, Arkansas River Headwaters Group for how many years did you do that, Stu? I worked there for 27 years, uh, five years seasonally and then full time after that. Wow. Boy, that's a lot of years. A lot of years. My <laughs> gosh. Now, and that which leads us to one of these questions. Uh, how do you think it's changed? How has the industry changed? How has the house changed? How's the city changed? Well, we could get into that, the city changed. And how's the recreation scene changing? Well, when we the city is changing, boy, that's for sure. What do you see that, that role being in those changes? Well, I, I do believe uh, that tourism in general has changed the face of Salida over the years. When I moved here in the 70s, uh, tourism was kind of a, a small industry. There wasn't a lot going on. And as uh, commercial rafting developed. Uh, it took on a whole new face in, uh, in the early 80s. Uh, it started to boom, and uh, uh, by golly, uh, Salida became a, a, a destination on uh, the tourist map. Well, that's right. I remember we were uh, uh, the cover store in two or three travel magazines during that period. Yeah, I had a friend who was a, uh, a writer and a photographer, uh, and did a lot of sports and wildlife photography. And he actually uh, decided to quit writing articles 
about Salida because he felt it was drawing too many people to town and that the, the tourism was uh, creating too much change in the nature of Salida, which it has changed the nature of Salida. There's no doubt about it. No doubt about it. Certainly river rafting is part of that change. Yes, river rafting and, uh, and uh, angling as well. Fishing is uh, a very popular sport. And uh, a few years ago, uh, the Arkansas River, much of it was designated as gold medal uh, fisheries. And uh, that's attracted a, a lot of recreational anglers. Well, and the people who don't like all this, of course, said yes. And that's why, you know, great blue heron numbers are down, why uh, kingfisher numbers are down, why some kinds of duck numbers are down. And I don't know how you, you've watched this river. Do you feel that's somewhat legitimate or it's just a, a gut level response or, or what would you well, say? I think anywhere you have human and wildlife interface, there's going to be impacts. Although uh, <laughs> wildlife has a way of rebounding. I see many more birds of prey, bald eagles and ospreys these days than I used to way back when, when uh, they were more on the threatened list. Uh, that's just general numbers of them coming back. And they seem to be pretty adapted to being able to uh, use the river uh, for a food source yeah. uh, with all the uh, commotion that goes on. And so uh, I'm sure there's some impact. Uh, even the bighorn sheep still drink out of the river. And I've rafted right by bighorn sheep just a few yards away from them. And they look up at you and you look at them and they seem to know that you're going to float on by and not bother. But I'm sure there are impacts. You see in wet years when there's more water up in the hills, you see less bighorn down at the river. Than a dry year like we're having now, you're likely to see more bighorns down by the river getting water and more of them crossing the railroad and the highway right. to get there, which is probably more of an impact on wildlife than the recreation is. I would say motor vehicles uh, create a huge impact on wildlife. I would think so. And that, I'm sure, leads to a, a betch question. Now, I do know what betch is. Does that, that, what is it? Well, Rick knows too. He's, attended some bets means what is it? bringing everyone together through the crisis of housing i do know i'm very familiar with betch in fact uh, i'm providing some entertainment for their fundraiser uh well, coming up friday. in june great is that friday this friday the second of june fundraiser at i believe it's at the steam plant very oh, worthwhile awesome. and a very active for a new organization a new nonprofit. Oh, they they can do Betch. We also along those lines, Clay Jenkinson. Clay Jenkinson does uh, John Wesley Powell. That's going to be kind of fun. I didn't know Clay Jenkinson portrayed him. Yeah, though. Clay Jenkinson is going to portray him. It's at the steam plant, and um, about the need to recharge our aquifers. That was a a big concern of his. That we you know keep sucking it out, but we don't recharge it like we used to and i don't know how how accurate that is anymore i mean what what year did he die would have been 1920 maybe quite a while ago yeah yeah it's been a while ago it's been a while well go ahead what what do you what do you think about all that about the uh, the water the water yeah. you're saying well uh a lot of western rivers when uh, allocation, uh, rationing or uh, dividing up the river shares, and, and now we're going through uh, an extended drought 
very similar to the one that uh, affected the Anasazis or uh, uh, the, the, the Pueblonian people 11, 1200 years ago. Uh, we're going through a period like that. And so with the ebb and flow of uh, climate and uh, precipitation, we are over allocated uh, to the water rights are over allocated. We promise more water than there is. And hence the drawing down of the reservoirs. It's going to be interesting. Well, it, it will impact the whole recreation industry, I would think. Although it's hard to imagine this river, which is a big, robust river. I mean, pretty hard to imagine this river being seriously drawn down, but I suppose it, it could happen. Uh, they say that it's happened to the Rio Grande. The Rio Grande through Texas is pretty much, Western Texas any, anyway, pretty much dry right now. And that's hard to imagine. That's correct. And that's a big river as well. So uh, it can happen. I think, uh, you know, being a little further north with a little more snowpack uh, helps us. Uh, but uh, it's my understanding before reservoirs and uh, water, intermountain water projects, et cetera, existed, that the Arkansas would get uh, almost dry at times. It was very hard on the fishery. And now we have stream flow programs and uh, water management that helps keep uh, the river at a viable level uh, during low water periods for the fishery. Now, that water is stored at Twin Lakes, my understanding. One of the the upstream buckets is Clear Creek, Twin Lakes, and Turquoise. And plans for another one in the uh, Hayden Meadow area. Uh, Colorado Springs is... uh, working on a new reservoir project, a side stem project, not on the main arc, but off to the side. And I forget the name of the creek because uh, not all my brain says fire yeah. every morning. So, <laughs> Once again, if, this, if any of these little railroad projects happen, why um, the tourist side of that would, would be in pretty incredible. I mean, they, would, they could indeed stop as the um, Cumbras and Toltec. Have you ridden the Cumbras lately? And uh, that's one on my hit list. I have not written that one yet. Oh, I, I think you'll enjoy it. Stopping is 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 good for tourist railroads. If, if they can't stop and people, you know, look around, walk around, have their lunch, that sort of thing makes makes for a lot of fun for a tourist railroad. So we'll see. Did work a little bit with the uh, Silverton, Durango Silverton train. Uh, one time because it does follow a whitewater river as well, the Animus. Well, it's well above the river level and not so many user conflicts. Uh, still, that is a major uh, access ve- venue for uh, boaters in in the uh, in that canyon because uh, at the bottom it goes into what they call the unrunnable canyon, and uh, boaters the have canyon? to the un- unrunnable. It's, un- uh, unrunnable. All right. Very difficult stuck with lots of log jams but anyway they uh, access they, they uh, depart the river and uh, and go uh, take their boats out on train yeah so worked with those folks uh, when I was down there working with the agencies on uh, some river safety issues so do they put the boats on flat cars or I wonder or did they just you believe so up? yeah uh-huh. that's what we did anyway when uh, uh, I, I think they can roll them up too and put them in uh, freight cars as well Guy, you think that would be an option for this area if you were to use the tracks in Browns Canyon to move the boats back up and not have to take them out and bring them back? You got to run them upstream somehow. Uh, 
this this river is fortunate, I guess, or unfortunate, depending on how you look at it, they have multiple, multiple access points all yes. along the river. Uh-huh. We're in like the upper animus. You start in Silverton and you, you, the, there's very limited access, one way in, one way out. I see. And is it that unrunnable? Uh, the upper animus is runnable uh, down to a certain point to where it gets to what they call the unrunnable portion. But it's very difficult. It's class five river, solid class five. And uh, they have their issues in high water years with serious accidents as well. That railroad then really does benefit a great deal. And they, and of course, they need to be, they've had some rough issues lately. They've, they've lost some pretty big lawsuits for starting uh, starting fires. That's the thing they've been uh, accused of doing and probably have. I, I don't know, but. Well, it's not uh, not unheard of here as well. Uh, I think the uh, Royal Gorge route has actually uh, contributed to some fires. And uh, I think their mitigation effort was is, uh, uh, during the dry season and the fire season, which seems to be all year now, they have a uh, high railer follow the train uh, to put out spot fires caused by friction of the wheels and brakes and scatter. Those things are, I think, a little scary anyway. High railers. Well, I it's mean, a pickup truck on the train tracks. Yeah, I can. they're silent. They're hard to hear and they're not very big. But they can stop a lot quicker than a train. Well, yeah, well, that's true. People just don't realize how how hard it is to stop a train. Even a lightly uh, loaded, say, coal train, you can easily talk a mile before you get it really for sure stopped. And if you want to do less than that, then then you flatten out your wheels. And that's that's no good either. So in the last episode, Forrest, you mentioned uh, being at the front of a slow moving freight train. What is that? Is that five miles, eight miles per hour? What, what are you talking about? No, no, no. They're more than eight miles an hour, but there are plenty of them that run 15, 20. Great train doing. Oh, yeah. They're, they're so heavy. They're so hard to move. They usually just crank that speed down because they don't want to get going too fast because it takes them so long to stop. Yeah. Yeah. And also, say say they know they're going to have to switch tracks or they're pretty sure they're going to have to switch tracks at some point along the way. Well, you, you want to hit those frogs doing three miles an hour, two miles. An hour. You'd, otherwise, you're going to derail. You just are because, you know, that flange is going to run up. Well, that's why it makes so much noise. You hear that sound. The flange is going to go all the way up and pop. There you are on the ground. So that's why they run so slow. Now, we're not talking about, say, the Santa Fe, your old railroad, the, the Santa Fe main line out there somewhere where you've got four parallel tracks and beautiful, uh, beautiful alignment and all that. And, you know, they, they'll run. Well, they'll run those freight trains 80 miles an hour. No, I get that. And you were, but you were talking about being at the front of a slow-moving freight train, and oh, I yeah. kind of wondered what what that speed was. Well, these through here, even if they were pushing it through here, I'd be surprised if any of them hit twenty-five. I could be wrong, but I don't think so. Because they've just they got to be ready for the next move, and through through this whole stretch of railroad, the next move is coming right up, even over around uh, Canyon City. You're seeing a lot of movement there. 
And remember, Canyon City, you're also getting all that it's pretty big through freight that's going to the concrete plant and the steel plant. And they still have to get a certain amount of limestone from around here to go over there to make all that steel. And of course, that's very controversial right now because a third of the steel, steel company you know, in, in, in Kansas City is owned by a Russian oligarch <clears throat> and they're trying to put pressure on him to put pressure on Putin to leave to leave things alone in the whole middle part of Europe, especially to leave things alone in Ukraine. I don't know how well that's working. That's interesting. But yeah, this one individual owns pretty much a third of the managing interest uh, in the uh, Pueblo Steel Mill, which makes, as we all know, most of the steel rail that most railroads use right now is made in Pueblo in long single rail units, quarter of a mile long. That's neither here nor there, but that's part of the interface for sure. And Stu, you, you used to see some of those. Did you see a lot of those really long trains? You mean the, the ones that carry the quarter mile long tracks? Yeah, yeah. Uh, they uh, replaced, I forget when, it was uh, late 70s or 80s, they did a, a large project through the uh, Arkansas River Canyons to replace a lot of those rails with the uh, longer rails. And so, yeah, I saw oh, yeah. some pretty interesting how they uh, offload those rails and set them. Yeah, they just offload them as a, I don't know what, like a rope. Off the train and set them as they go, and it's half of it's set and half of it's still on the train. Mm-hmm. And would you say those were about a quarter of a mile long? You would know better than me, Forrest. <laughs> yeah, I think I think that's about how long they are. Yeah. But I don't know. It's, uh, that would They had quite a little local controversy, letters to the editor and so on, saying, hey, here we are working for a, comp- for a guy, really. Uh, who is supporting uh, Putin and supporting uh, his war on Ukraine. But some other people wrote in and said, well, he's pretty distant from the management and blah, blah, blah. That, you know, that debate went on and on. Other people saying, even if he cut it out completely, what would it matter? Again, that's above my pay grade. I don't know if either of you gentlemen I want to jump in on that kind of thing, but I'll stay non-political this morning. This morning, <laughs> yeah. Well, all right. Well, now we've covered the questions. Wanted to make one point that uh, the railroad is uh, responsible in some part for uh, creating a number of the rapids along the Arkansas River uh, by uh, constricting the flow and narrowing down the flow. And we all know when you constrict a water flow, it gets faster. Then sometimes uh, they would uh, actually put rock in the river while they were... Uh, making the tracks. Uh, One good example where you can really see it well is in Browns Canyon in uh, Staircase Rapid, which is a series of five drops. If you look on the opposite side of the railroad, you'll see drill marks where they actually drilled and split boulders off to make room for the river because they laid the tracks right on the riverbed. And there's a number of rapids where uh, the rapids were enhanced by the constriction of uh, the river from the railroad. And uh, along Bighorn Sheep Canyon, you have the double whammy effect of the highway on one side and the railroad on the other, which uh, constricts the river sometimes from both sides. 
why you wouldn't say those rapids are man-made because when they were making laying the tracks for the railroad, they had no idea people would be boating that river. But I bet uh, a lot of the rock they blasted off ended up in the river, creating nice waves. That's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, it is. So we we so we altered it. So the railroad altered it from the start. They were, yeah, probably one of the first uh, uh, significant changes to the river in in this area anyway, and, and and a lot of rivers, I'm sure, because like I said, the railroads tend to follow rivers unless you're out on the yeah. flat. And I wonder if we ever got to, well, if we ever got the Tennessee Pass line open, which it looks like maybe is going to happen, we're going to have to then, all the rafting companies are going to have to think twice because they won't be able to get across. Say you've got a cut of cars, say you run out of your, your time, which freight crews fairly routinely do, not all the time, but you're out of time. You can't, you can't turn a wheel. And there you are. You're going to have to wait for another crew before you get out of there. So, well, yeah, I mean, there's uh, regular railroad crossings all up and down the river, and uh, I'm sure uh, in the past when the rail when the trains were active, uh, you know, you just waited a crossing for the train to go by, and then you'd be able to get across. Ruby Mountain is a place where you have a uh, a dirt road crossing of the railroad tracks without a without actually a uh, crossing gate. And so you have to be aware. Yeah, I, I hadn't thought about that. Then you're looking at the scenery. You're looking at Ruby Mountain itself. You're maybe watching for hawks. I've gone hawking. That It's a good place to to look for hawks. Ruby a lot Mountain. of rodents in those fields. You know, you, you start to think about that and you think, what would happen or what could happen in a situation like that? We, Again, we don't know, but... Uh, you guys, you river guys, are doing your best, I think, to install, uh, uh, install in the general public a sense that the crossbars mean something. Of course, or there might not even be a crossbar out there. I don't know. Sure. Well, even with an unused line, getting a ad grade crossing established is uh, quite an undertaking for anybody that wants to put a new road in across the railroad tracks. There's a, a lot that goes into that. And uh, do they have to then, I suppose, go against uh, whatever ruling the uh, Surface Transportation Board has made for that segment of track out here in eastern Colorado? They make it for 90 miles an hour. You know, if you've got an Amtrak train, you could go theoretically 89, what, miles an hour. You, in fact, 79 is the real limit. But Yeah, trains run at a much slower speed. Of course, when I first started drafting as a commercial guide, the rail line was still active, very active, a lot of freight trains, and it never ceased to be the luck uh, that when you're going down a big rapid and trying to yell commands to your paddle crew, a train would go by and drown you out so they couldn't hear a thing you were saying. Oh, boy. So, you know, well. if you're going to call a forward paddle, uh, and they back paddled, uh, you were in a world of hurt. Or if you want them to stop paddling, and sometimes you just tell them, listen to my cadence. If I'm saying one word over and over, that's stop, stop. Yes. <laughs> and, and so they might not hear the back word, but they could hear the bark. River runners. Yeah, the, 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 uh, commercial trips. Yeah, when I was running yeah. commercial, the train was yeah. always interesting added uh, feature to uh, a raft trip. Sure, sure. You think I think we're 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 winding it down here? Yep. Okay, we're winding it down from the caboose. 
Stu Pappenford, oh, so nice hearing from you. You know, I, I, I knew that you'd been the, the head man, so to speak, for a long time on the uh, upper Arkansas and that, that you've done a lot for safety, for changing. You've seen cooperative times with the railroad and uncooperative times with the railroad. What's the most uncooperative time? I guess we never asked you if they were ever uncooperative. I wouldn't say uncooperative. Sometimes it was difficult depending on what the situation was. And situations progressed over the years where Fibart didn't used to get a permit from UP to use the tracks. And all of a sudden, as we started issuing special activity permits, we realized that if there's any private property you're going to utilize, you needed permission. And so yes. uh, at, at times it was difficult to find the right terminal, the right person to talk to in a huge organization like Union Pacific. Uh, so I wouldn't say they were difficult, but uh, they do have their liability policies and they're pretty tight on those. So uh, it's not that they're being difficult. It's that they're uh, watching out for their own best interest and their uh, stockholders' interest. All right. Are we wrapping this up? Yep. We are wrapping this up. Another segment of On the Rails me, your host, Forrest Whitman, here at KHEN 106.9. Now, what we're going to do, you all you all know what a fusee is, right? You pop the top, and it's a big red flare. And you, anytime you're stopping out on the main, which we're about to do, you pop that, you throw it out. Doesn't cost any, no forest fires have ever been started with a fusee. All right, let, let's put that right out of there. And what do you do? You yell high ball, and then you take off. We want to thank our engineer. Rick White for pulling the train successfully today. We want to especially thank Stu Pappenford for his insights. He was the insider and is the insider on so much that's going on, the interface between the rails and the river and the river rafters. So uh, thank you again. All right, at the time, what? Count of three, big highball. One, two, three, highball. Oh, thank you, Highball. Thanks for having me. Cahan is supported in part by Hilltop Broadband. Hilltop Broadband for residential and business wireless internet service. Servicing Salida and Poncho Springs in Chaffee County, as well as areas in Fremont County, Custer County, and more. To experience the Hilltop difference and request new customer information, email info at hilltop-broadband.com or call toll-free 877-783-2889.